to a special edition of the Experience Garden and Exec MBA podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. So on this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recent conversation I recorded with a professor here at the Darden School, Kenda Hatcham. Kenda is a professor in the Global Economies and Markets faculty, and she recently joined us for the second installment in our ongoing partnership with Ideas to Action called Office Hours. We caught up with Kenda to talk more about her background, hot topics and economics, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my Office Hours conversation with Professor Kenda Hatcham. Kenda, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Kenda, tell us a little bit more about you and your background. So I well, so first, thank you for thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so I joined uh, the Global Economies and Markets Group at Darden. It's been like two and a half years ago. Um, I was I'm more on the so this is the econ group at Darden. I'm more on the macro uh, side, looking at connections between macro and banking, um, financial stability risks, how central banks respond to them. Uh, before coming to Darden, I was on the faculty at the Business School at the University of Chicago. Before that, I did my PhD at the University of Toronto, so I'm originally from Toronto. Um, And right before my PhD, I worked for a year at the Bank of Canada, which is uh, the central bank in Canada. So that's sort of been, you know, by that point, I kind of had a cohesive uh, focus on on macro and central banking and financial stability. A little bit of a different question. What got you interested in economics originally, kind of going back in your story? What what led you to say, hey, this is what I want to do? So it's not a glamorous story at all, um, but I'll, I'll give you the short version. So I, growing up, I wanted to be an engineer like my dad. So my dad's an engineer. He does like physics and engineering. And that's what I wanted to be. My mom's an interior designer and I have no artistic skills. So like right off the bat, I had to be like my dad. Um, in my last year of high school, I did like a it was kind of like an internship, a business co-op program. Um, where you can substitute up two credits with just going and interning at a place of your choice. And so I said, all right, let's get a little bit of a different perspective. Um, And I went to Royal Bank of Canada, which is one of the big uh, commercial banks in Canada. And I liked it a lot. So I was in the corporate resources department, which was uh, essentially kind of the allocation of funding across various areas of the bank. So I got to kind of get a better sense of just from afar, how the bank worked, where the money was flowing, um, the new acquisitions that Royal Bank was taking at the time. I mean, this was early 2000s. And I was like, this, I mean, this is interesting. This is actually what I want to do. Um, So then when I went to undergrad, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Commerce program, which is kind of like the undergraduate MBA. And I realized that kind of, I might've gone too far away from what my original motivation was. So accounting just really wasn't for me. Um, And I kind of longed for a bit more of the like analytical rigor in, in like math and stats. And so I was like, what could, what, what's my happy medium? And that ended up being economic. So you do like, I mean, you, it's very front facing and that you've got a lot of, Uh, You care a lot about the business world, but at the same time, there's sort of the tools and the foundations that you find in, you know, disciplines like physics and math and stats. So it was kind of like back and forth until I found my happy medium. That makes sense. It's a, it's a process. It's a journey. So tell us a little bit more about what you, what you teach here at Darden. 
So I teach two courses. I teach the uh, first year uh, macro, the foundations course, the first half of it. Um, so basically just building up the model that gets used in pretty much every other economics course to like to be able to uh, process shocks and understand them, understand the implications for the key macro variables that uh, affect the business environment. Um, and then I teach my elective, which is the economics of money and banking. So that one is really a course on uh, financial stability and central banking. And one of the things you mentioned, I want to talk about that second course. Um, so when we were doing the prep call for this conversation, you mentioned that you look at a lot of different banking systems around the world. Um, at least that was my understanding, sort of, um, you talked about the Icelandic uh, system, maybe it's something that comes up in your class. How do you pick what things to talk about in that course? So fundamentally, I think all spectacular collapses have a few things in common. Um, and so, I, I mean, I look for um, crises or major events in banking systems that on the surface seem very different. Like it's a different country with a different set of institutions, you know, different dependencies on the global economy, different financial products that are kind of at the center of the problem. But when you boil it down, it all comes down to, you know, a similar formula that, long-term, they borrow short-term, um, people don't internalize the risks, and then you get a massive run. So I think for me, Iceland was just something that, um, if you think about it, it's, it's, a, it's one of the biggest banking collapses that occurred. Um, it, it was countrywide, and I think what made it a bit more um, you know, stark was just how quickly the banking sector grew. So we're talking a matter of a couple of years, you get this massive run-up in the banking system, and then two years later, completely gone. So this sort of very volatility, looking for uh, episodes that exhibit volatility, and definitely things that seem like they, they're different. And then, you know, the course is really about, it's not about studying one specific crisis or one specific policy episode. It's going through a bunch of different cases and, and teasing out the commonalities. What's it like to teach uh, those, to have that kind of conversation in your class? Obviously we talked in Rich's session about the case method and the learning experience here at Darden. What's it like to have a discussion around, uh, around something like the Icelandic banking crisis? So I enjoy it. I mean, for me, I before coming to Darden, I didn't teach case-based. It was more uh, lecture-based. So I wasn't sure what to expect when I came to Darden, and this was all sort of student-centered. Um, but it's a lot of fun because I feel like the students come more prepared. They know that the onus is on them to push the discussion forward. My role is simply to be the econ police. So you get a lot of different perspectives and you kind of hear people hashing out ideas with each other and sort of seeing the class just take on a life of its own and, and um, kind of coalesce around a fundamental point and that like aha moment for people that comes at different points throughout our like 85 minutes, but it comes. So I think the level of preparation that's involved in kind of a case-based discussion lends itself very well to talking about these 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 crises and and the policy responses because different people will connect with different things and then bring that into the classroom um, and then there's the back and forth eventually settles like you you kind of sift through um, all the details and you settle on what it, what is the fundamental thing that we need to talk about as opposed to me just being like 
here it is and everyone taking it at face value. I mean, that would take five minutes. Well, I'm curious what it means to be the econ police. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think it's in the second year, it's it's once we've done the foundations in the first year, um, being the econ police is really about tying things back to a structure um, that allows us to walk through in a, in a small number of steps from shock to outcome um, and making sure that people aren't kind of making implicit assumptions along the way without being clear about what those are. I think part of the, like a lot of disagreements involve assumptions that are that are not stated. And so just being on the lookout for assumptions that people are making implicitly and asking them to clarify those. And then, you know, sometimes there are things that are just wrong. Um, and so, you know, calling those out. You needed econ police, in other words. Um, so what brought you to Darden? So you talked a little bit about the you know, case method being new uh, for you in terms of an instructional style, but what led you to Darden? So it, it actually was uh, people in the econ group. So any, any, anybody, any alumni that are, that are watching this probably know Frank Warnock. So I knew Frank from um, just econ conferences going back uh, since I, since I, sort of started uh, post-PhD in the profession. Um, and, you know, I, I was talking to him, he was telling me a little bit about Darden, and he was like, well, why don't you come and see what the place is about? And at the time, honestly, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be real. Um, it wasn't on my radar. Uh, so I was sitting in, in Chicago at the time. But I came to visit, I got to know the institution, I got to know the people, I got to realize that there are some really good researchers here. Um, you know, the Richmond Fed is nearby, uh, the econ department has good people, there's lots of resources. I sat in on a class, like a case-based class, and, you know, I saw how it worked. Um, and I was like, this is actually kind of, you know, this is really interesting. And this is a, a very effective way to teach. And Charlottesville itself was honestly, I really like it. I didn't expect that I would. I mean, I grew up in Toronto, I lived in Chicago, so I've been like a big city person all my life. But I feel like Charlottesville is sort of the right mix of um, you have all the conveniences that you would need to live comfortably, but at the same time, you don't have like all the aggravation of, you know, crowds and traffic jams and, and noise. And so and, and the weather is for someone coming from the north, spectacular. Some are not so great, but the winter months are, are a, a very, very welcome uh, relief. So once I, I, I visited twice, I got to know the place better. And I was like, you know what, this is, I feel like sometimes you just, you need a, a, a bit of a change, a bit of a, um, just to kind of reset, refresh. And this just seemed like a place where I like the way they taught. Um, the research environment was had a lot of good, interesting people, and the city was just amazing. So I said, "All right, let's just you know, let's do it. Let's let's give it a shot." Um, and I've been enjoying it so far. I appreciate your your point about the the seasons. You do get four seasons in Charlottesville. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about well, Toronto summers maybe a little bit uh, more temperate than uh, Charlottesville humidity. It it comes with the territory, so to speak. So um, you shared a little bit more about your journey and sort of what got you interested in economics. Uh, let's talk about your research areas. So what are your, what are your research areas and maybe how did you get interested in these particular topics? Yeah, so big picture, um, my, my research is about 
kind of connecting macro models that let you kind of make predictions about what happens to output prices, welfare, just things that sort of aggregate across sectors, connecting that with banking models, which have traditionally been a lot more uh, micro, micro-based. Um, and I think that bridge is important. So it became very like acutely realized after the financial crisis that, you know, in, in the standard macro model, there's a lot of simplifying assumptions regarding banks. You know, the baseline is the banking sector is competitive. Um, there's, you know, the, the ability of macro models to predict financial crises at the time where I was sort of doing my PhD was not, it was like the crisis was, was we're in the midst of the crisis. And you really had to turn to these more partial equilibrium uh, banking models to get a sense of what was going on. And then there was sort of a big push to let's see if we can connect those. So that's kind of been, you know, all the papers that, that I've written that are in the, the core of my research agenda have this goal of bringing micro foundations of banking, the banking sector and fi the financial sector more generally into uh, macro models. Um, and I think so that that helps to better understand the kind of externalities and the spillover effects that that decisions by bankers can have. Um, and whenever you think about right. And so once you understand those uh, those externalities, then that kind of takes you to the next step to. All right. Well, we understand what the failure is. We understand what the inefficiency is. We've got to regulate it. But we know that once we regulate uh you know, agents respond and we need to be able to forecast or predict what those responses are gonna be in order to design the appropriate regulation. And, and a model that sort of connects the micro and the macro is gonna be better able to uh, predict what would otherwise be unintended consequences of regulation and allow you to design better policy upfront. Well, this is how good Kenda is at being on one of these moderated conversations walks right into my next question, which is one of your areas of interest is unintended consequences of regulation. And um, what what brought you to that work? I mean, I feel like regulation is one of these things that's just constant, particularly with respect to the banking industry in the conversation always. What brought you to this sort of unintended consequences of regulation work? So after the financial crisis, I think there was a big push to just regulate, like just that's going to be the solution. We're just going to, you know, slap on regulations left, right, and center. And I think if you take a step back and think about it, I mean, the, the goal of a regulation is to, on the margins, significantly change costs and benefits for a bank to the point where they actually change their behavior. But that kind of opens the door to, well, if the regulation is going to be large enough to have material consequences for a bank if they don't follow it, there's an implicit tax imposed by this regulation or an implicit cost associated with the regulation. And if that's large enough, they may have an incentive to figure out, well, how do I restructure my activities? Or are there other uh, you know, platforms on which I can conduct similar activities and not be subject to the regulation? So that, that automatically kind of opens the door to arbitrage of the regulation. So if there's a loophole, um, you know, that activity can slip through, um, so the, I guess the, the motivation for me was there was a rush to regulate the financial sector and regulations were not intended to be small because regulations were intended to change bank behavior. And then that leads to the question of, well, 
Do you understand how exactly you're changing behavior? Um, let's, let's think through it to make sure that there's gonna be no uh, unintended effects. All right, so the Q&A is starting to heat up naturally as these conversations go and we've gotten some good questions. I will say just off the top, we're not gonna be able to answer every question. We're gonna do our best. And um, one of the things that's true is there's a lot of conversation in the news right now that's economics related, certainly here in the United States, a lot of discussions about inflation and uh, brings me to my first question. This is one that we got in advance as well. So. Um, Kenda, there's a lot of discussions about inflation. Should we be concerned about it? Should we not be concerned about it? What should we be thinking about here in the short term, long term? Um, what, do you, what do you make of this conversation? Yeah, so I think the inflation numbers have picked up. That's for sure. So, you know, the March numbers came out and they were in the threes as opposed to in the twos or sorry, they were in the twos as opposed to in the, in the ones. Um, I think that, so let me break it down into two issues. I think one issue that's kind of leading to this debate um, is the, the Fed's change in its framework. So in August, the Fed kind of announced that it was going to be less about targeting 2% at every point in time and more about, you know, an average of 2%. So that's, I mean, that kind of opens the question of, okay, what do we mean by average over what horizon? Are we going to be slightly above two for 10 years? Or are we going to go to like six and seven, seven for one year and then go back down to two? So I think that kind of creates an environment in which when you see a spike in inflation, it's like, well, how far do we go? Because we don't really have a, there's no hard and fast rule on over what horizon are you going to have? I think so. So I think in that that in that environment, I understand kind of all the the frenzy around. Oh my God, inflation is picking up. Like you know, where where are we going to go? Or are we going to become the next Argentina? I think that debate is a little bit um, like it's taken on a life of its own and it's sort of misplaced. I'm not. I'm not. To me, I'm not worried about it because if you think about it, what is inflation? Inflation is too much money chasing too few goods we haven't gotten to the point where the chasing has occurred. So the Fed has tools to control the amount of money that circulates um, and how quickly that leads to, to increases in, in, in prices. So I think the view of the Fed, which is, I believe in the environment we live in the correct one, take a step back and think about why is inflation bad? So high levels of inflation are not good for kind of fixed income assets, but volatile inflation is just not good for planning. We're nowhere near the point where those concerns, like the volatility is not high levels of volatility. The level I think is reflecting as businesses start to reopen, there's still some like rust in the supply chains. So demand is coming in, supply is adjusting, you're having these increases in prices, they're, they're meant to be temporary. Um, if you look at things that predict kind of the trend of inflation, like inflation expectations and wages, you're not seeing those like, you know, going off the rails. So the longer run trend, I think is still stable. And it's also worth noting that before, um, you know, before COVID, inflation was low and there were some structural things that was causing inflation to be low. Um, so, you know, people talk about aging populations, but you also have technological innovations that are just improving the supply side. That's going to lower prices. And I think those 
innovations still exist. And one could make the argument that you've had even more innovations as a result of COVID. Like it, the economy has become, um, there's more ways to work. There's more ways to be productive. There's more ways to contribute. And so I think those supply side innovations as they continue to come online will keep putting downward pressure on inflation. So the volatility that you're seeing now, and I'll put volatility in quotes because it's really not it's not the type of volatility that you see before like a hyperinflation. Um, I think that's just reflecting the economy kind of getting back, uh, getting back on the rails. So, you know, there's a debate and I think it's good to have a debate about these things, but we're, we're not at the point where this is concerning and the Fed knows how to deal with it. Central banks know how to deal with inflation, like decreasing inflation, they know how to do. Increasing inflation is, you know, that's the more complicated one, but decreasing inflation, you know, there's a very, a very clear formula, formula to do that. One of the things uh, that came in as an advanced question is, are, are there any tipping points, anything that you think that we should be watching out for in this sort of inflation conversation? You'd mentioned, obviously, the, the most recent sort of price index, you know, suggesting that inflation gone up just slightly, but, you know, the sort of underlying situation hasn't changed too much. Is there anything that you're looking for as a, as a tipping point? I mean, so a tipping point as in a number above which we're just going to like the, we're going to spiral off into hyperinflation. I think once you get into these hyperinflation episodes, it's all about expectations and that's going to, that's going to differ by country. That's going to differ by time period. Um, I think, you know, the, the Fed is keeping an eye on it and you know, we would keep an eye on it. What do the wage numbers look like? I think that's been wage growth is a well-established um, determinant of inflation uh, patterns and expectations. And you can measure those. I mean, you can measure those through surveys. You can measure those through um, just like financial contracts that are, are meant to uh, you know, hedge against increases in, in inflation. So I think if if we if we see one of those two series going off the charts, that would be concerning. But um, you know, the if the Fed is doing its job, we never get to the point where we're anywhere close to a tipping point. Um, so the Fed understands the lags in monetary policy and is going to act uh, preemptively. Um, in terms of you know actions that might be concerning, so you know whenever banks search for yield, that's always you know, some, something to keep an eye on. So in this like low interest rate environment, there's a lot of liquidity in the banking system. Um, you know, the Fed can always raise rates if it needs to, but I think that's something that one would keep an eye on, you know, bankers going out and searching for yield. And just to be clear, it's not kind of the search for yield that's, that's necessarily the problem. It's more the search for correlated yield or the outcome actually being that bankers land on exactly the same types of products and, and therefore become correlated. But those are more kind of on the financial stability side. So I think on the financial stability side, that would be the, the concern. So banks taking on correlated exposures is something that, that one has to look out for. Um, and then just on the, the more like supply traditional macro side, wage growth and, uh, trends and in inflation expectations. And so far, I mean, none of those indicators are close to raising alarm bells. So the Fed has been very active uh, during this past year, um, ensuring flow of credit and sort of keeping the economy, well, at least sort of 
directed towards recovery. It seems like a flow flow of money, um, keeping keeping things active. Um, I wonder if you were Fed Chair Jay Powell right now, what would you what would you be thinking about? I mean, besides when I can finally sleep again, um, I think so. Probably now is probably the time to start thinking about an exit strategy. Um, and I think the playbook is going to be very similar to the exit strategy that was adopted uh, after the financial crisis. That is, you know, you don't one shot undo all your asset purchases. You begin to taper the pace at which you buy things. I think the complicating factor is with COVID, you don't really know when the economy is recovered because you're very dependent on just the status of the of public health and with all the variants and it's we don't, it's very hard to predict the path of recovery because variants crop up. Whereas in the financial crisis, it was the patient was the banking system. Um, and so you can kind of, once you've gone through the books and gotten a sense of all the off balance sheet exposures and stuff, you, you have a sense of whether your patient has recovered. Here, you know, it, it's an evolving process. So I think figuring out the timing of Exit is definitely something that that um, I would be thinking about if I if I were the Fed. We've made a lot of progress in the past twelve months. So you know, think back to twelve months ago from from today. The best case scenario was to have vaccines in twelve months, um, and we've actually accomplished that. So I think in in that regard, it there's definitely a state of the world where we get out of this by, you know, the end of the year or the beginning of next year. And so it's important for the Fed to start, you know, planning for that. So that's kind of on the monetary policy side, I think exit strategy. On the financial stability side, um, I think something for the Fed to, to think about is, you know, volatility in short-term funding markets. And I think this is something that they were even beginning to talk about before COVID hit, but then COVID kind of provided another data point on why they need to think about this. So, you know, money market mutual funds are large and systemic and important. And when shocks hit the economy, shocks hit the, the money funds and they end up going into short-term funding markets and that causes volatility in those markets. So, you know, there's there's like structural funding risk in, in money market funds that I think the Fed is, that I, I would think, and they are thinking about it. Um, so I don't think this is a hypothetical of, of what should Powell do, but I think thinking about um, how to, you know, I don't know that the answer is necessarily regulation, but better understanding the systemic risks associated with money market funds um, in order to alleviate some of these, these issues in short-term funding markets, I think is something that's also high on the agenda. One of the questions we got in the Q&A is, um, when you say shocks, what, how do you think about shocks? What qualifies as a shock? So, I mean, the technical answer is something exogenous, but so let's say, I mean, the pandemic is a shock. The financial crisis, I think, you know, we say it's a shock, but this is a good question of what was the thing that was actually the shock? And there it was the turn in expectations. Um, Cause you could, you could argue that the financial crisis was kind of, it was built up through a set of endogenous decisions. So like, you know, we shouldn't really have been surprised. And so what the, the issue there was, once house prices began to turn, which 
again, if I mean, this is going to get very meta, but is, is a change in house prices a shock? Well, maybe not, because house prices are an equilibrium outcome. So they depend on demand and supply. So you're going to have to think about what shifted the demand curve, what shifted the supply curve. And these are usually things related to preferences. So things that we kind of take as given as economists. Um, so given a set of preferences, given a set of expectations, we can go through like optimization problems by all different sorts of agents to figure out what is the equilibrium outcome. And then a shock is really going to be uh, a change to those preferences or a change to those expectations. Thank you for that. I was, I was curious about it myself. Um, and so we wouldn't have one of these office hours sessions without talking about cryptocurrency. It seems like we're, we're two for two. We've gotten a couple questions here, Kenda. And I wonder um, what's your perspective on cryptocurrency? Bitcoin seems to be in the news all the time. Uh, do you think there will ever come a time when you know, some of these cryptocurrencies become actual currency and, and sort of used in that way? Or do you see it as more of an investment product? Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on this? Definitely more of an investment product. So I, I mean, I, I don't know what Rich's view on this was, and I may, I may be completely the opposite of him. Um, to me, crypto is an innovation that's in search of a problem, like it's a solution in search of a problem. Um, I So the, the reason I don't see cryptocurrencies as currently, you know, currently modeled. So let's take Bitcoin as a specific example. The reason I don't see Bitcoin as a currency in the traditional sense is it's just way too volatile. Um, and when you think about currencies, payments instruments, the whole point of a payments instrument is to eliminate kind of transactions costs and eliminate frictions in the trading of goods and services. So you want to be able to transact without having to think twice about the value of the medium of exchange that you're using. Um, otherwise, you, you, mean, you might as well just go back to a barter economy where you negotiate the price of you know, what, what you're, the service you're providing in exchange for the good. So the, one of the defining features of money is that it's got to be stable in value um, so that you don't introduce additional computations into the, into the transactions process. So th the issue is something like Bitcoin, and this is one of the things that was initially a selling point. So think about, I mean, think back to like 2008, 2009, the Fed's balance sheet is expanding dramatically in response to the financial crisis. The inflation debate was raging then, which we never ended up seeing materialized, but people were worried that this was gonna cause a massive hyperinflation. So something like Bitcoin, which has built into it a fixed supply of the currency is not, is, I mean, the, the, one of the selling points was, well, that would not lead to hyperinflation because there's scarcity. So there's still scarcity in Bitcoin that will allow it to preserve its value. Whereas the Fed is just, you know, running the printing press and, you know, it's free to produce and therefore you're going to get tons and tons of this of US dollars and it's going to become completely worthless. The issue with kind of having a fixed supply is as demand fluctuates, if your supply is fixed, the price is going to fluctuate. And so automatically it's not gonna be stable value. So what you want for a payments instrument is supply can adjust to the demand so that you have kind of stability and you have you don't have this, vol this volatility. And cryptocurrencies that have a built-in supply cap are just not gonna be able to do that. And so they may function well as a um, 
investment instrument. So in the same way that gold, you know, whenever people have concerns about the value of a currency, they rush to gold. Whenever you have concerns about the value of a currency, you can rush to, to Bitcoin or crypto. But that automatically means that it doesn't function. Uh, it doesn't function as money. So as an investment instrument, sure, it's one of many. As a currency currency, it just doesn't serve that purpose. Well, thank you. I felt like we're getting a few questions about it and we talked about it in the first office hour session. Let's just keep this streak alive here. So um, one of the things, and I noticed we're getting a lot of really great questions in the q and I promise we'll, we'll get to as many as we can. Uh, one of the things though, I, I wanna make sure we talk about is sort of the broader global picture here with what's going on. So we've talked a lot about the US, we talked about the Fed. Um, obviously there's there've been discussions here about the K-shaped recovery, um, how different people are having very, very different experiences. And you're starting to see conversations conversation about a K-shaped recovery uh, globally uh, because of the distribution of vaccines, um, how where wealthier countries like the United States are with vaccine distribution and shots going into arms vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, poorer countries. And so, um, you know, what can, what should countries like the United States be thinking about right now doing um, to sort of mitigate against this sort of broader uh, global issue? Yeah, so I think the it, it's a little bit like, I don't, well, I don't know when the last time any of us took an airplane was, but if you think back to the last time you took an airplane, that announcement where they tell you, you know, put your oxygen mask on before you assist others, there's a little bit of that going on. So I think you know, the K-shaped recovery globally is, is definitely an issue. There's also K-shaped recovery in the U.S. There's unequal distributions of vaccines in the U.S. So I think it's important for you know, countries that are at the forefront of this to shore themselves up first and foremost, and then look to, um, you know, how do we aid in vaccine distribution? Now, that being said, it is, this is, it's, even if one took a very like narrow nationalist perspective, it is important that all countries are able to recover from COVID because I think, and I, this gets said a lot in the, in the medical community, you know, we're no, but so COVID is not eradicated anywhere until it's eradicated everywhere. The mutations and the variants. And so there is, there's benefits to everybody of having vaccines across the globe and just, you know, knocking this out uh, once and for all. So in that sense, I think vaccine distribution, you know, amping that up, um, providing it to countries at, affordable prices, et cetera. I think that that's important and that has to be done. Even if you took a very like, you know, nationalist perspective and you were completely private interest, not about, you know, what would the global social planner do? You should still have an incentive to provide vaccines around the world because if you don't and it proliferates somewhere, it's coming back one way or the other. Um, in terms of you know financial assistance, I think there the IMF has to play, the IMF is the one that's gonna play the the leading role more so than any one individual country, but you know countries are members of the IMF, so it's kind of it, it's, it's all related. But I think the the IMF is going to have to take the lead in this. Um, you know, postponing debt service costs is something that they've been doing. Providing countries with you know, access to credit at low interest rates. I think what you don't want is developing countries 
like shifting money away from taking care of the health se- the healthcare sector and and vaccines and and all these medical supplies towards repaying debt. So uh, debt uh, postponement of interest payments, restructuring of debt. I think that's something that you know the research shows that if you restructure debt once a country defaults, that's very different than kind of preemptively restructuring the debt. So on the financial side, thinking about how do we give developing countries that are on the wrong side of this K-shaped recovery um, a little bit of fiscal breathing space? How do we get them access to credit? How do we make sure that they're not you know, all wrapped up in debt service costs until well after the pandemic is over? I think those are um, accommodations that, that you know, richer countries can certainly make and the, the IMF is, is pushing in that direction. So one of the conversations that's popped up recently, Janet Yellen's been out talking about a global corporate tax rate. Um, What do you make of this idea? And do you think it can actually happen? Um, Do you you see it coming to pass? So I think in principle, the, the way that I understand it, there's kind of two components to it. The first component is just closing these loopholes so you should pay taxes in the place where you generate your revenue. And I think that that's a principle that will be independent of whether we we uh, settle on a uniform global tax rate. And then there's, you know, you plug in the extra, you fill in the cracks with a global tax rate. I mean, I think the spirit of it is I agree with the spirit of it. So I think one thing that COVID showed is that countries need to have, like governments need to have resources. You need to have fiscal resources in order to be able to deal quickly and effectively with crises. Um, so, and I mean, how do you how do you build up your resource base? Taxes. And you know, this idea that everybody's got to pay their fair share of taxes, I, I think the spirit of this is it makes sense. And, and, and you see, a little bit of the same dynamic in the banking system. So with regulation, um, this idea of a race to the bottom where countries will compete for business by, in the case of regulation, offering banks less uh, stringent regulation. I mean, you see that. And the problem is that, you know, if the country doesn't internalize the spillover effects of a financial crisis, then that's that comp- that type of competition is bad because you don't take into account that, all right, let's say all of this business flows to your country that is very like, that's regulated very uh, anemically. Well, regulation is there to correct some sort of market failure or some sort of, of externality and you're not actually correcting it and the thing blows up, that's gonna have spillover effects to other countries. So I think the race to the bottom is a problem in, to the extent that it leads to not internalizing the spillover effects that decisions are going to have on, on other countries. So I think the spirit of the global corporate tax is, is the right one. Can we achieve it? You know, the devil's going to be in the details. So how do you come up with an agreement on what is the minimum tax rate? If you set it too low, it doesn't have teeth and, it, and it's not going to do anything. Um, unless you go back to the first principle, which is kind of independent of what tax rate you set, you've got to pay, you have to pay taxes uh, in the place where, where you earn your revenue. And I think that principle makes sense. So if you 
think of it like this. So who would you go to? Which government would, would give you a bailout if you needed a bailout? That's a government to which you should be paying taxes. Because if you don't do that, then the, the, the burden is going to fall on the rest of the population. And that's kind of, that's, that's in and of itself distortionary. So I think in principle, it's a good idea. Implementation, we'll see. I mean, I think they can, they'll agree on a, a number, but whether that number is gonna be high enough for this to actually have the uh, effect that Yellen and, and Biden wanted to have, that's not as clear. I want to come back to another one of your areas of research and expertise, banking. Um, what do you see as some of the biggest threats to the banking system right now? Are there things that you're thinking about that are on your mind? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest ones, I think, is cybersecurity. Um, you know, with people working from home, bank employees work from home, that kind of opens up some vulnerabilities payments uh, technology getting outsourced to third-party vendors. I think sort of kind of the competition, there's been heating up competition and payments. Um, and so, you know, part of, of the cost cutting is to, to outsource some stuff to third-party companies. So, you know, just look at recent recent hacks and that'll, that'll tell you that, that once you move part of your infrastructure out of it being in-house, you're now susceptible to any vulnerabilities that may hit your suppliers or that may hit those those vendors. So, I think cybersecurity and banking is is a real concern. Um, it, there, I mean, there are other things that you know, the more normal normal ones. So, credit risk is is going up. Um, bank profitability in the future has a little bit of a question mark around it. So you should probably expect higher fractions of non-performing loans as we exit COVID. Um, in a world where banks' uh, margins are already compressed because of low interest rates, I think, but that's sort of a, a, a problem that's always there in the background. It may be a little bit more acute as we recover from COVID, but that's one that kind of the Fed or and central banks in general as lenders of last resort are equipped to help with. Whereas cybersecurity is, it's, it's a different animal. Um, you know, the Fed could kind of, could lend to you, but the the issues associated with cybersecurity are different. Um, and so it's not lender of last resort can only temporarily hold you over. So I think I would say um, cybersecurity is a big one. I think there's also some discussions going back a little bit to the crypto uh, as an alternative to crypto um, that alleviates some of the problems, which is you know the volatility. Central banks have been discussing central bank digital currencies. So this would be a way of providing the convenience benefits of digital or cryptocurrencies without the volatility because the central bank would be managing the supply. Um, that's gonna introduce competition for bank deposits. So you know, depending on how central bank digital currency is structured, if you could have a bank account at a central bank or you know, a special vehicle that's set up by the central bank, when the central bank raises rates, you know, if banks don't raise deposit rates in exactly the same way, there's going to be lots of like uh, flows out of the banking system. So now, 
The Fed, for one, would never introduce a central bank digital currency if it felt that it was going to destabilize the banking system. But, you know, just this conversation of alternatives to deposits could change the way that deposits are priced, which in an environment where banks are already experiencing some issues with their their margins, that, that could just change bank profitability going forward. So I would probably put that second on my list, less so as a threat, more just something to keep an eye on. Um, you know, the nature of deposit competition may change going forward. But biggest threat, cybersecurity. Jay Powell, also on the record, is saying as much. Um, I'm an old person. I watched 60 Minutes. He was just talking about this on, on Sunday night. So um, y'all are thinking alike uh, with this very, very issue. So uh, I want to talk about an Ideas to Action article that came out a, a little while ago um, that you wrote. Uh, this is Office Hours is a joint production between the admissions team and Ideas to Action, which is a great place if you're interested in learning more about the research and publication that faculty are doing, great place, place to learn more about that and read some of it. So Kenda, you wrote an article about shadow banking in China. And I wonder where, where did you get this idea for you know, an article about shadow banking, specifically in China? Yeah, so this um, this research agenda started a long time ago. So I, I was in Chicago. It was the beginning of my time in Chicago. It was like 2012. Um, and I actually wanted to talk to, I was teaching money and banking in Chicago as well. And I, I wanted to introduce some stuff about shadow banking in China into the course, just because it was getting a lot of attention in the financial press. Um, you know, the Financial Times had run a series of articles on shadow banking in China. The Economist was talking about it. You would just hear little snippets, but none of them were particularly precise. So, you know, there, was, there were reports that were like uh, shadow banking in China is somewhere between 10 and 80 percent of GDP, which is like, you know, it's an extremely wide range. It's not it's not very informative. So I, I kind of wanted to poke around a little bit in it um, just to have a better handle on it myself before we actually talked about it, uh, talked about it in class. And you know, the more I looked into it, the more I started to see, you know, going back to something we said, I said we said at the, the beginning that on the surface it looks very different. I mean, the products are different, and this is a country with a completely different set of institutions. Um, but fundamentally, when you kind of like get into the economics of it, it really does look a lot like shadow banking in the US. That is financial products that emerge that kind of achieve the same, you know, credit intermediation, but also have like a, a liquidity risk in them in that they're very short-term products, but the funds are used by uh, the bank or the shadow bank or whoever the sponsor is to uh, lend longer term. Um, so, you know, credit intermediation with, with maturity transformation, but done in, a, in an area of the economy that's not highly regulated. And so, you know, the fact that you see these things emerging in China, which is a completely different country than the US, but fundamentally it's really similar to, to what you saw in the US, I think made it kind of more more fascinating for me. And that's sort of what, what got me more interested in just like looking at, let's say Iceland for the purposes of, of you know, the, the class that I'm teaching at Darden. Well, let's look at that one. Is that another example where it looks really different on the surface, but once you, you get into the details, it's fundamentally the same. 
So I'm wondering, you've got a really good question here about, you know, how do you, what resources do you use to kind of get a feel for what's going on in the broader sort of macroeconomics of, of the world globally? Are there any things that you turn to to learn more about, you know, sort of get a feel for what's going on out there economically? Um, well, so the financial press is, I think, required reading for every economist, um, not for not necessarily for content or analysis, but more, you know, what are topics that are just, you know, the market is really interested in. Um, I also think that kind of the, the way that Darden is structured is actually very useful because you have students that are, that come from backgrounds where they've worked on specific financial products or they've worked on specific like financial deals in, in certain companies or industries. And so they come in with like, in this industry, this is the hot topic. Um, and so, you know, you get questions about that and that kind of, that sort of indicates to you that on the ground, this is something that, that um, people, people are interested in. But I think, you know, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist, those have a very good track record of just being on the pulse of what are the topics that are running through markets at any, at any given moment. The analysis, I mean, you know, we can debate about the analysis and the, the point of view that they take, but just once you see media coverage on certain topics, it becomes clear that that's, that's something, that's something that, that uh, people are talking about. But I do think that students are a very good, um, like that's something that I learned from my students. You know, they're like, well, we, this is something that we were really focused on in my firm um, for reasons X, Y, Z. And then, you know, the, the, the role of the faculty is to just, you know, walk through the economics of it um, using the models like tried and true models that are much more conceptual and much more abstract. Um, but it's, it's always interesting to see how those models fit, you know, new uh, manifestations of old ideas. So we've got a couple questions around sort of debt, government debt, and is this something that we should be concerned about? Uh, do you think this is also one of the things that's been a really hot topic here in the U.S., particularly related to the government spending in response to COVID, the current infrastructure bill that has been proposed by the Biden administration. How do you think about this issue? So I think the U.S. is kind of in a lucky position relative to other countries that there's just there's the, the demand for the U.S. dollar is very high. Um, just it's used in trade. It's used in contracts. So. US, I mean, there, there's a lot of appetite for U.S. debt, independent of the Fed, you know, buying on secondary markets, which obviously makes it easier for, for the government to issue on primary markets. So independent of that, I think there is there's a lot of demand and appetite for U.S. debt. So in that sense, I mean, I don't I, I don't think the U.S. is near the tipping point where the amount of debt has gotten unsustainable, but there is a theoretical tipping point you know, somewhere down the line. Um, we're not near that. I don't, I'm not even sure we know where that is because we've never really been near that in the past, you know, at least in my lifetime. Um, I think debt for other countries is 
is an issue, especially for emerging countries. Um, it kind of goes back to the K-shaped recovery where, you know, you have countries, they need money. I mean, they need money to do, you know, social programs. They need money for vaccines. They need money, you know, to invest in hospitals going forward. And either they can't get it because, you know, they're kind of close to their borrowing constraint and the price is too high, or they've got to repay existing debt. And so they're using that money to pay interest rates instead of using it to actually kind of get, get, out, of, uh, get out of the pandemic. So I think debt in emerging countries is an issue and it becomes incumbent on you know, advanced countries to sort of think through debt restructuring some, I mean, you know, either debt forgiveness or postponement of debt service payments. Um, the U.S., I think, you know, is it's it, as long as these investments generate growth in the future, it's fine because then you're you're going to be able to pay your interest payments off of the growth that they generate. So I, I'm less concerned about the U.S. and more concerned, Brett, to your question about the K-shaped recovery of you may actually see a big divergence between countries in terms of how debt and debt loads affect them. And that's probably something that, you know, we need to think about from now. Well, one of the things I love asking faculty members about is what, what they're researching right now or what you're working on or what's caught your attention um, in the work that you do. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in right now is going back to kind of the instability in short-term funding markets and you know the role that money market mutual funds have played and what is monetary policy like in this environment. So um, you know, funding gets fragmented between the traditional banking system and some of these you know financial institutions that offer comparable services but aren't aren't really banks. Um, so thinking through instability in these short-term funding markets, the role of money market mutual funds, and whether there is a way for the Fed to design monetary policy more effectively in that, in that environment. So that's something that kind of on the financial stability side is, is interesting to me and that, that you know, we're currently working on. Um, and also just the implications down the road for how do we see monetary policy? So should the Fed expand the set of counterparties that it does these operations with? Um, should it expand the set of financial products or the set of securities that it trades as part of monetary policy? Um, you know, that, that's, all, that's all on the agenda. Kenda, I wanna thank you for sharing your expertise um, and your insights. And that was my recent Office Hours conversation with Professor Kenda Hatcham. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.